Welcome to Business Trip, a podcast about psychedelic entrepreneurship. We explore the business models and origin stories of the most interesting companies in psychedelics. I'm Greg Kubin, and my co-host is Matthias Serebrinsky. This is part two of our three-part series on microdosing that explore the science, history, and clinical applications. In part one, we interviewed psychedelic researcher James Fadiman, who shared his enthusiasm for microdosing after researching thousands of reports. So microdosing improves everyday life. And for people who have difficult everyday lives, meaning physical or mental difficulties, it also seems to improve a lot of those. In part two, we wanted to understand the placebo effect. In particular, is it the microdose that makes people feel better? Or is it a placebo effect? We interviewed Balaj Zaghetti, who is part of the Center for Psychedelic Research at Imperial College London. In 2020, Balaj and his research team conducted the largest ever placebo-controlled microdosing study. Placebo-controlled means that one group was taking a microdose and the other group was taking a placebo, which is an inactive substance. Participants in the study were responsible for procuring their own microdose. Most took LSD or psilocybin. Through a clever study design, which we'll discuss in the episode. Participants didn't know if they were taking a microdose or a placebo over a four-week period. This means it was a self-blinded study, since the participants didn't know, but the researchers did know who received the dose. Note that this is different than a double-blinded study, where neither the researchers nor the participants know who is receiving the dose. Balaj was trying to figure out if the effects are due to the placebo or the actual drug. What does he find out? Microdosing really does have benefits, but we also show that taking deceptive placebos is enough to reproduce those benefits. In this episode, we discuss Balaj's study design, his results, and how to design a study that is more likely to get FDA approval. Get out your lab coats and calculators, because this episode gets technical. Don't worry, we'll break things down for you. So, Balaj, welcome to Business Trip. Great to have you here. I was wondering if you can start by introducing yourself and sharing how you're involved in the psychedelic medicine space. Yeah, sure. Hello, everybody. My name is Balaj, and I work as a postdoctoral research associate at the Center for Psychedelic Research at um, Imperial College London. And how I joined this space and in this research group in particular is because I did a study called the, the self-blinding microdose trial, which was a, a neat way of introducing placebo control into um, a citizen science initiative. And uh, yeah, that's uh, that was my way into psychedelic research. That's great. Can you share a little bit more about the clinical study that you run? And more than anything, I would love to start by kind of you sharing what that what the design looked like. Yeah. So actually, there is a very important word that you said because you said that uh, tell us about your clinical study. Use the word clinical, but 
The important point is what we did wasn't really a clinical study. It shared a lot of features with clinical studies, most importantly, the placebo uh, control. But it was not a clinical study per se. Like we, we haven't seen any of the patients at any time. What made this study unique is, is, is the self-blinding methodology. And, and what it is, is that it was basically a setup procedure that every participant had to follow, and it enabled uh, uh, voluntary participants to set up their own placebo control without clinical supervision. So what's cool about this is that typically when you are um, thinking about placebo control, you're thinking about the classic clinical study like the one that you have mentioned when you go into a clinic and the doctor is either going to give you the active treatment or the placebo. But with the self-blinding methodology, we, we have avoided patients ever going to the clinic, and that is very good from a cost reduction perspective. Nonetheless, we have still managed to retain to have the placebo control in our study with this self-blinding procedure that allowed participants to blind themselves. Sorry, uh, I'm going to mention blinding a lot, and it's a technical term. Blinding means that you do not know uh, what are you going to take? So blinding means the uncertainty that you do not know when are you taking a microdose or a placebo in the context of this study. And I don't want to go into the details, but to give the listeners a high-level overview of how this self-blinding is working, is that participants had to purchase non-transparential capsules, and they were hiding their microdoses inside these non-transparential capsules. And it was critical that these capsules are non-transparent because then the empty ones could be used as placebo capsules. So basically, participants filled some of their capsules with the microdoses and the other half was empty. And then each of these capsules was uh, labeled with a QR code, those two-dimensional uh, smartphone-readable barcodes. And then essentially, these, these capsules were all mixed together. You randomly selected one of the capsules, scanned that QR code, then that uh, has connected with the IT infrastructure of our study and that allowed us to track who is which type of cap capsule uh, at what time. So self-binding gave us a way to be able to track who is taking what, but without sharing that information with the participant. And again, why it is cool is because it has created this situation where it's not a classic clinical study, but it also means that the costs were significantly lower compared to a clinical study. Nonetheless, we still had the placebo control. So this, this, this is the element of the study which made it unique. And, and to the best of my knowledge, this was the first self-blinding study, not just in the context of psychedelic research, but in the, in the broader medical literature as well. So I often say, and it's actually somewhat true that when you read our paper, like, you know, psychedelics and microdosing is exciting and cool, and, and, and I get that, but what the real story is the methodology here. So what, what results did you find? Uh, so the results are complicated. Let me just focus on one aspect of it, which is the most important aspect, and that is the, the long-term outcomes. And that is the changes before and after a four-week strong microdosing regime. And by that I mean is that participants took in the microdose group two microdoses per week for a four weeks long dosing period. And then people in the placebo group, they just took placebos for the entire four weeks long duration. So what we have measured is a bunch of parameters related to psychological well-being. And our general findings were the following. This is almost true for all of the scales. 
If you just look at the microdose group alone, so people who have taken microdoses for this four weeks long dosing period, then after that four weeks long dosing period, they are doing better compared to where were they before that four weeks long dosing period. So there is a statistically significant increase within the microdose group from baseline to after the treatment. And in a sense that really validates all of the anecdotes about microdosing, but the other aspect is when we are making the comparison to the placebo group, because people in the placebo group also improved. Again, broadly speaking, as consistent with the larger medical literature, people in the placebo treatment arm have also improved. And if you look at the difference between the microdose and the placebo group, that is not significant anymore. So what that means is that all of them have improved equally within a statistical measurement error, in a sense. So what does that really mean? The way we have interpreted that in this study is that microdosing really does have benefits. We clearly show that, that validates the anecdotes, but it is sufficient to take deceptive placebos to reproduce those benefits. In a sense, we have validated what is said about the microdosing because people in the microdose group really did improve, but we also show that taking deceptive placebos is enough to reproduce those benefits. So in a sense, like the benefits are not induced by the pharmacological action of the drug, whether psychological effects related to positive expectancy are sufficient to reproduce these benefits. That is fascinating because if you read anecdotal evidence or research not being conducted with randomized placebo-controlled trials, they seem to show that microdosing works. But it feels like there is a disconnect between what different clinical studies are showing and then what is more like portrayed in pop culture. And I'm curious if you have an explanation of that. And do you think that there is a potential for different trial design that may help identify better if the pharmacological effects are actually driving results? So let me start with the first question, and that is about what you call the disconnect between results from clinical studies and the people's experience of microdosing. There is seemingly a contradiction here, but it's not. Really, the two are 100% consistent with each other. Remember, what we have found is that microdosers, people who microdose for four weeks, they really do better. They just don't do better than people in the placebo group. But it doesn't mean that they don't do better. So our results are 100% consistent with all of the positive anecdotes about that. We show that there is an improvement. We are just adding that second sentence to it that, oh, and by the way, if you are taking deceptive placebos, you can get the same benefits. But that's not the same as saying that there are no benefits at all. And I think it's very important to make that distinction. So you are correct that there is a seeming disconnect between people's experience and the clinical literature. But if you are having a deeper look at the data, that's actually not true. Again, we are consistent with people having benefits from microdosing. It is just that those benefits can be reproduced by taking placebo. And one like, you know, like half a thought that I would like to add here is that like, you know, the number of people who have tried taking placebos in the context of a microdose study are much, much smaller than the number of people who have tried microdosing. So I think people very consistently underestimate how strong the placebo effect can be. And this is something which uh, is established in the placebo literature, not 
in not just in the context of microdosing and psychedelic research, but broadly for psychopharmacological research. People tend to think that the placebo effect is this very minor effect that's relatively easy to overcome, but that's not true. Like a placebo effect can be very, very, very strong. That opens some questions on the FDA approval route because the FDA requires that therapy show some statistical significance with the placebo arm. And so I guess there is a possibility that microdosing works, but at the same time, it may not be approved as a FDA drug or a therapy. Yes, there's a threshold that every drug has to uh, surpass, the the placebo threshold. But I think there are like two important thoughts here. Let me start with some of the other results that I haven't mentioned previously. So what I have talked about is the long-term effects of microdosing, that people from baseline improve to after the therapy. But we have also measured uh, some of the acute outcomes. So that is like, you know, how are you doing a few hours after you have taken either a placebo or a microdose capsule? And in these acute outcomes, we have actually found some statistically significant differences. They were very, very small differences, but statistically significant. The reason for these small differences is because people can very easily recognize when they are under the influence of a microdose versus when they are under the influence of a psychedelic. But the point that I am trying to make that if you're focusing not on the long-term outcomes, but rather on the short-term outcomes, our study is actually consistent with FDA approval for microdosing. Now, the other part that I want to make, which is a, a more general point, but something which I think it's, uh, it's important, that when a drug shows statistically significant difference compared to a placebo arm, in itself, that doesn't mean much. What you really care about is the effect size, that how big of a difference does it make? And this comes out very nicely in a debate in the SSRI literature. So SSRI stands for Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors. And those are the, the classic uh, antidepressant drugs like acetalopram that are uh, prescribed most commonly by psychiatrists. And what I want to say is, is that if you look broadly at the trials that have conducted with SSRI and when SSRIs were compared against placebo, then the magnitude of the improvement in the SSRI arms is just tend to be marginally bigger than the improvements in the placebo arm. Now, just the way the statistics works, if you increase the, the, the sample size in your study, then no matter how small is that difference, you can always make it statistically significant. Let's break down statistical significance and clinical significance and why the difference is significant. Statistical significance measures whether a research finding is meaningful and didn't just happen by chance. A study is statistically significant when the p-value, which stands for probability value, is 5% or less, meaning there is a 5% or less probability that the results are due to random chance. This is different than clinical significance, which explains how well a treatment is working and has a genuine and quantifiable effect. One indicator of clinical significance is called effect size, which shows the magnitude of difference in outcomes between two groups. Balage is suggesting that when a study has a big enough sample size, it can show a statistically significant difference between the placebo and microdosing arms. But that difference might be too small to be of any practical value from a clinical perspective. So 
for example, in the context of depression, depression is typically measured on what is called the Hamilton scale. By and large, people in the placebo arm improve eight points on this Hamilton scale, and they improve about 10 points in the SSRI arms. So that two points of a difference is statistically significant, but there is a debate whether it is clinically meaningful. Uh, statistical significance is one question, but what's the much more important question is clinical significance, whether the change is meaningfully impacting the patient's life in a positive manner. And arguably, the two-point difference between placebo and SSRI is not enough for that. There are people who are making that claim in the scientific literature. I'm actually, I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic towards that, especially if you factor in the side effects of SSRIs. Anyway, I sidetracked a little bit, but I wanted to emphasize that the, there is a critical difference between statistical significance and clinical significance. In your study design, the participants had previous experience with psychedelics. I'm assuming that's partially due to the fact that people who have experience with psychedelics can actually procure psychedelics to participate in this study. But I'm curious as to whether you think the results would be different for uh, participants who had no experience with psychedelics. Uh, yes, I am close to being 100% convinced that it would be different. And there are two key factors for that. One of them is that people who are familiar with large-dose psychedelic experiences are going to recognize much easier the effects of microdosing. A lot of what how people recognize when they are under the influence of microdose versus placebo comes down to what is broadly speaking known as uh, body load in the psychedelic literature. So think about some uncomfortable stomach feeling, tension in the muscles, tension in the body, and these are present also with microdosing, obviously to a much smaller degree because the doses are smaller. But nonetheless, somebody who is familiar with how come up on, let's say, LSD feels like is going to have an easier time to recognize when they are in uh, under the microdose condition versus the placebo condition. So that's one of the reasons that with the non-psychedelic enthusiastic crowd, the results would have been likely different. And the other part of it is that it creates probably an expectation bias. People who are participating in our study, they are probably people who have a positive outlook on psychedelics. Otherwise, they would not be engaged with, with our study. Otherwise, they would not be engaged probably with the world of psychedelics. But because they are, that creates positive expectancy about microdosing. So that is sort of like boosting the placebo effect in the sample. And we were very aware of that when we started the study, that probably our sample is going to be very psychedelic enthusiastic and it's going to create a bias. But unfortunately, that is just the way that it goes. So if I'm understanding this correctly, it would have meant that the kind of difference between the two trial arms would have been even smaller, right? Correct, correct. If you're correct for this bias, your, your results are not going to be even that good as we saw in the trial. And what we saw in the trial was not very good to begin with. Do you know how the participants were procuring the microdoses? And is that important? We asked them about whether they have tested it and if they did test it with what method and so on. But like we didn't ask explicitly about the source. I mean, you know, you can assume that 99% source it from the black market. Like, okay, some participants in the Netherlands may got it legally and special circumstances like that. But it was, you know, sort of like source from the black market. And I mean, obviously, that leads to questions 
about the exact dosage that people took. In a sense, you know, we proudly acknowledge this as a limitation of the study, but the reason why I'm saying proudly is because everything that is about microdosing, all of the excitement, all of the positive anecdotes were coming out from people who also source their psychedelic overwhelmingly from the black market. So we assess the effects of microdosing as it is practiced in real life that has this inherent variability with the potency of the drug use because practically everybody is sourcing it from the black market. So in a way, like you know, I don't look at it as a negative aspect of the study. I look at it as a positive aspect of the study because we assess not clinical microdosing, when you know exactly the dose and all of that, but rather what is the efficacy of real-life microdosing when these uncertainties included the variables. That being said, since our study came out, which was last March, a few clinical studies have also been published. And broadly speaking, they came to the same conclusions as we did. So it seems that actually these like small differences in those are not that super critical. And actually that makes sense because some of the people are going to underreport their dose, some of the people are going to overreport their dose. It's probably averages out in particular in a large sample like ours. One more thought here. Put aside psychedelics for a second. If you are talking about good old medication, let's say like ibuprofen for fever, like I'm not sure, you know, how is it where you are sitting right now, but where I sit, you can buy ibuprofen in capsule sizes of both 200 micrograms and 400 micrograms. So that's a 50% variability in the dose, but most of those doses are effective. Obviously, 400 milligrams is going to be a stronger effect than the 200 milligrams when it comes to ibuprofen. The pharmacology of microdosing is much less well understood, but here it would be just also like super weird that, you know, like let's say 50 micrograms of LSDS doesn't have an effect, but 20 micrograms or 18 would have like this very big and, and very profound effect. No, that's not how it works. You always expect a dose response relationship. So that's why I suspect that the actual dose gets often portrayed as if it would be more important than it actually is. That's how I feel about it. Balaj, I want to go back to the design. How did you come up with this design? As you mentioned, it's quite unique and it's the first time that it's done this way. Here is the story. So when the idea was born, it was around when I was finishing my PhD back in 2016. And that's when I started to become interested in psychedelic research. And that's when microdosing started to pick up some steam and and I thought that, you know, hey, you know, this is like maybe like a good angle into psychedelic research, microdosing, because it was like novel, there were not that many studies on it. You read the anecdotes about microdosing, like the placebo question very naturally comes into mind, right? Like, you know, you don't have to be a very well-trained scientist to realize that placebo, the question of placebo is a very relevant one here because of this very enthusiastic crowd but what I realized very quickly is that, like, you know, nobody's going to give me money to do this. I mean, I was just finishing up my PhD, like, you know, scientifically speaking, you know, that's like, you know, coming out of kindergarten. And these studies with Schedule 1 substances are very expensive. There is just like zero chance that, you know, people would give me the money. So, yeah, I was a little bit frustrated. And one day I realized that actually you don't need a classic clinical study with all the bells and whistles, to have placebo control in, in your study. I remember when the idea exactly came, because it was very soon after my daughter was born, and like, you know, she was like crying in the middle of the night, so I was like trying to put her back to sleep. It was like 3 a.m. or something like that, and that's when, you know, I realized that, like, you know, you can use capsules and QR codes to do all of this. And I remember that I, I haven't slept for the rest of the night because I was so excited that this could work. 
But the following morning, I remember my wife woke up and she's like, oh yeah, how are you? And we're like both tired and all of that. And But I remember I was so enthusiastic and I, and I told her immediately that I have a really good idea, but it's going to be a lot of work to make it through. That's the background story. Like, you know, I was just, uh, my mind was playing around with placebo control, microdosing, and there was some frustration that I knew I'm not going to be able to do it. And then suddenly, oh yeah, but you don't need a classic clinical trial route. You can, you know, use some of that um, hippie creativity to make your own placebo control study. That is the creativity in the in the scientific realm that I'm, I'm fascinated by that. We keep on chatting with different scientists and uh, they have this creative side and like things are, are less sometimes straightforward than what it would look like from outside. But to be honest, I thought you would tell me that you came up with the design while microdosing yourself. <laughs> no, no sorry, sorry. <laughs> that would have been a real curveball given the, <laughs> given the results, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that should have been the disclaimer. <laughs> so the, the other thing I was, I was thinking is kind of as, as you came up with this design, also based on the fact that there's a constraint on resources, right? Like, let's suppose for a moment that there is unlimited funding and unlimited resources to design a study that would maximize the chances of actually showing significance. So, okay, it goes a little bit into like the ethics side of things, because when you are designing a study, at your disposal, there are lots of tricks that you can use that pushes the study in one direction or another. So one of the most important tools is the the actual recruitment process, how you are getting the participants. As we discussed, like who are the people in your study really influences the outcomes, and in this case particularly so. So like, you know, if if you know, in a way, if I would like to have like positive results, I would have designed the study in a similar way that we did, that we make sure that people who are enrolled in the study are, are psychedelic enthusiasts. I, I often joke, you know, when I talk to people, especially from the business side of things, is that if you want to have a statistically significant microdose placebo difference, hire me as a consultant because I know how to do it. The funny thing is, is that after doing this study, I really feel like I know how a study should be run in order to have that positive result. In a way, it would be a fake positive, but it would pass that FDA approval process because you would have a statistically significant placebo microdose difference. And the other thing which I wouldn't do, which is actually very, very often ignored by pharma exactly for this reason, is that I wouldn't care about the break-blind rate. That is how often participants can figure out whether they are in the active intervention or in the placebo control group. Uh, very like remember that I said that we asked participants to take a guess whether their capsule was a microdose or a placebo at the end of every day, and very often that question is not asked from participants or the analog question in clinical trials. And I I, I feel like that very much because of what you asked me is because if you do, then you can realize that actually the quality of your placebo control is not so good because people can figure out their drug condition at a higher than chance rate, which can cast doubt on the trial results. Uh, so anyway, there are like a few tricks. Uh, most important is the sample that you're going to recruit in the study. And, you know, I think with that, you can create that placebo microdose difference from a statistical perspective. I think from a scientific perspective, like, you know, it probably still would not be a very solid result, but you can, you know, pass the FDA eye test, so to speak. Mm-hmm. 
One data point I noticed in your study is that 7% of participants had a mental psychiatric diagnosis. Uh, I I suppose a a big difference would be, you know, looking at a patient population that has a diagnosis. Curious in, in terms of your thoughts there. Yeah, so I, 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 you touched upon something very important that our trial was by and large with healthy people. And at this point, all of the microdose trials has a healthy population. Nobody studied the effects of microdosing in a patient population. We are going to launch the cell lining microdose study 2.0, where this is actually going to be one of the differences is that we're going to make more of an effort to recruit people who have a diagnosis or they're self-diagnosed with um, a mental health illness, such as depression or anxiety. The results could be different there. I mean, honestly, I don't know. If I would have to put down a bet, I would bet that it's not going to be effective in the patient populations, but there is no empirical data on that. What we did to sort of like approximate that is, is that we separately analyzed pe- people from our study who fell into the bottom one-third of well-being scores at baseline. So people who were like, you know, depressed or close to being depressed. And there the qualitative conclusions were exactly the same as what I told you for the entire sample. So that's one of the reasons why I don't think that, you know, the uh, treatment would be effective in a patient population, but I can't rule that out either. Mm-hmm. And what are your thoughts about adding psychotherapy or coaching to a microdosing protocol? In a lot of the late-stage clinical trials with psilocybin, MDMA, there's a psychotherapy component to the protocols. I'd like to know if you think that adding psychotherapy would be a differentiating factor with regards to a microdosing study. So two important notes here. So first of all, the psychotherapy component that you mentioned is always in macrodose studies. So in no microdose study, it is together with therapy. And in those larger studies, like the role of the therapist is much more obvious to guide the treatment than to process the experiences there. So with respect to microdosing, uh, because it is not a very intense experience, the role of the therapist is less clear. And also, if you look at the anecdotal evidence about microdosing, so on the Reddit forums, on the Darknet forums, most of the people are doing it without therapists. So again, it goes back to that in our study, what we have wanted to test is whether microdosing is effective as it is practiced in a real-life context. And actually, if you look back, this conversation around therapy together with microdosing has started to intensify just in the past few years. And I think that is a reflection of the negative studies that came out about microdosing states. But the other important point here is that if you're interested in that question, then the comparison that you want to do is not placebo versus microdose plus therapy. Then the comparison that you want to do is placebo plus therapy against microdosing plus therapy. And that's a different scientific question compared to what we try to assess, which is the more naturalistic one, the more which is related to the use case in uh, real life. One thing I wanted to bring to attention, which I thought was really interesting in your study, was that you also included some of the quotes from the placebo group. One participant said, I have just checked the envelopes and it appears that I was indeed taking placebos throughout the trial. I'm quite astonished. It seems I was able to generate a powerful altered consciousness experience based only on the expectation around the possibility of a microdose. One other participant said, an empty pill with strong belief and intentions makes nearly everything. You put spirituality into an empty pill here. Wow. I love those quotes. 
makes me really think about the idea that you are the placebo and the power of your mind. And riffing on that, almost looking outside of the world of microdosing, Balaj, are there other ways that you, either in your own life or in studies that you've seen or designed, seen such a significant role of the placebo in whether it's healing oneself or living one's life a certain way? Like, how have you seen the impact of the placebo in life as people live their everyday lives? So I think, you know, what's important with respect to the placebo is that what's important here is that those, the, the placebo effect needs to be triggered in a sense. Like, you know, you need to be excited about that treatment in order to trigger the placebo effect. Like placebo, like so the microdose, a microdose trial would have less impressive results if you would do it with less enthusiastic people. Like, you know, think about it. Like, you know, if you are somebody who is excited about microdosing, is it sounds cool to your friends uh, at the next cocktail party to tell them about your microdosing experience. That creates, you know, a positive vibe around whatever you are doing in itself. So I think, you know, what is, it, it's sort of like key here and the key lesson is, is, is that your your attitude towards the things matters a lot. So like, you know, it, it, it leads a little bit into like positive psychology and what makes a difference in your life is the outlook on life, not what life does to you in a sense. I think that's the broader implication here is that your attitude matters towards what you are doing. You touched on the cost of the study being dramatically cheaper. In the paper, you say that the cost was 0.5% to 1% of the typical clinical trial. That's amazing. Do you foresee this kind of study design being used um, in future studies? And obviously, clinical trials are can be hundreds of millions of dollars. So what influence do you hope that this could have on how future studies are designed? I think it's going to have an influence. As I said, what's important to recognize here that this is not equivalent to a clinical study. But I think this study has other strengths. Most importantly, that this is real-life evidence, that this is whether a medication works in the context of people's everyday life. So we are planning a similar study with CBD oil, another self-blinding study, although it's not exactly going to be self-blinding. It's just difficult to do self-blinding with oils. It's, it's just a messy process, you know, to put them into capsules and all of that. But we are also in contact with people who want to do self-blinding study in this realm of um, sleep supplements and, and neurotropics, so cognitive enhancers. So we are just developing those initiatives right now. I, I feel like what self-blinding needs is, is to go outside of psychedelics. As I said, to the best of my knowledge, this is the first and the only self-blinding study that has been conducted up to this point. So in order to make the methodology more widely known, what we want to do is to team up with researchers who don't want to study microdosing, but where the self-blinding model could fit, such as sleep supplements and neurotropics. So uh, yes, we are actively working on expanding the methodology. What is your personal experience with microdosing? I don't answer that question, and it's because, you know, regardless whether I respond yes or no, like, you know, it could take in the wrong way. You know, if I say that, no, I haven't tried microdosing, then like I could be attacked that, you know, I don't have like, you know, lived experience of microdosing. Yeah. On the other hand, you know, if I say that, yes, I'm a microdosing enthusiast, that could be also attacked that I'm a biased investigator here. So I, I just, uh, you know, it's up for you to decide. <laughs> 
Balaj, I love that you're bringing an out-of-the-box approach to research and clinical studies. That's usually the role that Greg plays in our partnership and in the fund. <laughs> and so uh, I, I appreciate what you bring to the table. Thank you so much for coming to the pod and answering your questions. And it was a lovely conversation. Thank you for having me. Take care. Take care. Take care. We wanted to understand how drug development companies are designing their microdosing studies to get FDA approval. We chatted with Dr. Dan Carlin from MindMed and Dr. Mike McDonnell from Diamond Therapeutics. They are the chief medical officers of two companies that are developing microdosing therapy programs to treat conditions like ADHD and anxiety. Tune in to part three of our microdosing series to hear their stories. This is Business Trip, a podcast about psychedelic entrepreneurship. If you like this episode, you can help us by subscribing to the podcast and leaving a review. You can tweet at us or find us on the gram at Business Trip FM. And if you're building a company in psychedelics or looking to get more involved in this space, email me at greg at businesstrip.fm. I'm Greg Kubin, and Business Trip was co-created by me and Matthias Serebrinski. Producer and editor is Jonathan Davis. Sound design and engineering came from Zach Frank. Our theme music is by Dorian Love, and additional music credits are in the show notes. This is Business Trip. Thanks for tripping with us. We'll see you next time. See you next time. See you next time. See you next time. It was like 3 a.m. or something like that. And that's when, you know, I realized that, like, you know, you can use capsules and QR codes to do all of this. Capsules and QR codes to do all of this. Capsules and QR codes to do all of this. I was so excited that this could work. I was so excited that this could work. Capsules and QR codes. I was so excited that this could work. 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 This could work.